the sounds of Bart, that eerie, windy whoosh, the mangled station announcements, the freight car clacking, if you know it, you know. I have been riding Bart, Bay Area Rapid Transit, ever since I was a sixth grader headed to school, and over all these years, I have never loved it, but I always loved where it might take you. From the high desert of the Far East Bay, to hot boxing Berkeley, to the wantonly gorgeous Embarcadero waterfront. And it always, always was the best way to get you to the Mission District, running straight as an arrow underneath Mission Street, dropping you at either 16th or 24th. Either stop, you would take the escalator up and immediately be in an open-air kitchen. And it was a long time ago, so I can't remember if it was always gorditas or pupusas or churros, but it seems like anything that could be fried would be. Anything that was good, there it was, sold by the Central American and Mexican women who had prepared it all by hand that day. Now what of those women? That was the early 1990s. How did they survive the real estate apocalypses of San Francisco that came afterward? How do they and women like them get to see the rewards of the boom days in a clearly food-obsessed town? How do they play a role in rectifying the gross inequality facing women, particularly immigrants and women of color in the food industry? What are they doing during COVID? Well, I've got an answer for you, or at least the start of one, La Cocina. Emiliana Puyana is program manager at La Cocina, and her job is to find the right entrepreneurs and give them some power. Financial backing, business planning, moral support, La Cocina has worked now with dozens and dozens of ambitious, talented women, particularly women of color and food, to get them the tools to make it in the Bay. Their grantees are, as Emiliana put it, eating awards like candy. Emiliana herself is incredibly well suited to her role because she was there once, a La Cocina grantee who had taken the love of food she got from growing up in Venezuela and turned it into a career and then a business and now a calling. We drank Negronis last year, long before COVID, and talked about it all. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Emiliana. Yes. What have you brought to drink? I have brought my favorite cocktail, which I mixed this morning at 6 a.m. Oh, man. Uh, before I left the East Bay. I've not tried it yet, but it's a Negroni. 
is a Negroni. Also my father's favorite cocktail. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, deep lineage here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's very exciting. And it was mixed early in the morning, which I don't know how that affects. Like, do you go heavier on the alcohol when it's a 6 a.m. pour or... Or you just kind of like, oh man, is this really going to happen? Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, my my girlfriend gave me a funny look when she saw me open the liquor cabinet <laughs> at six a.m. Um, I, Damn, I, it's a I, tough Thursday. I mixed it into ice. I stirred it for a little bit. I was unsure of whether or not we'd have ice, so I didn't want it to be just straight alcohol and and no dilution. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> All right, well, let's do it. Should we get a sip on this thing? Yeah, it's please. a beautiful After flask. You, you said this is a. Uh, the La Cocina flask. Yeah, drink to your heart's content. We had those made uh, about six years ago, I think, for our first uh, night market, which is uh, something we used to do before our street food festival. Oh, man. All right. Yeah. So this is a vintage collector's... La Cocina item. All right. And I can get the first snort of this? Yeah, not right. please. Yep. <laughs> Hot damn, that's good. That's good. That's like... Oh, man. Now I'm going to ask all the bartenders in my life to just get me that 6 a.m. batch that <laughs> that fresh in the morning east bay negroni goodness um i see that you're wearing a, a corona styled hat that says caracas uh-huh. so this is your father's favorite drink going back to venezuela that was like that was his jam that was that was his jam is there a strong negroni culture in venezuela or is this something he was like let's be italians now uh, there's a lot of Italians in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, a ton of Italians came to Venezuela after the war. Not anymore because, uh, sadly, the situation in Venezuela is, well, difficult. But uh, not that long ago, um, Venezuela was per capita the highest consumer of pasta of any nation in the world. Holy crap. Um, so we eat a lot of pasta in Just all sorts of weird cards. ways. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, we're talking like mayo and ketchup. We're talking tuna. Uh, we're talking seafood with a lot of cheese you know italians maybe wouldn't approve but yeah pasta and also blended scotch really highest per capita consumer of any nation i mean it's not a bad life right no (laughs) pasta with ketchup and blended scotches uh yeah all right well they i mean i remember from cuba they certainly had a lot a lot less resources than venezuela did back then but they were just pasta fiends like and you know they just the idea of italian food was for them really transporting in this kind of like uh very charming way um all right so let's go uh let's go back there you you were born in caracas you started cooking there i was actually born in new york okay. um, my folks are both venezuelan born and, and raised um but uh, my father was working in new york in the early 80s and both my older brother and i were born there okay um, and I lived in New York till I was about five, but then went back to Venezuela and was raised there All right. the rest of my life. Um, and that's when you first started getting into hospitality, cooking, food was down there. Yeah, I've always really uh, loved food. Um, it's a big part of my culture, and I would say in general, most Latin culture, um, you know, to sit around a table with family and eat. Um, and particularly in my in my household, in my family, uh, Sundays were sort of sacred. I, you know... I have these memories of like waking up in the morning uh, with like music coming up from downstairs and it was like some old school boleros or something like that and and then a, a smell would hit me and and you know I'd get downstairs and you know my mom and dad would be starting to cook something for aunts and uncles that were coming and so yeah that's kind of how I got into cooking. Uh, just that that feeling. So did the bolero stay with you too? Is it like? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got, you got a collection. Uh, I don't know. 
know if necessarily a collection, but I definitely got some oldies stored like way, way uh, back in my in my head. And anytime I I hear a good bolero come on, I sing along. And so you uh, you were into food kind of emotionally uh, through your family um, story. You you ended up coming back to the states. Uh, when how did you get here? Yeah, I came to the States uh, in 1996. Okay. Um, it's been I, a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I, I ended up uh, going to boarding school in Connecticut. Uh, and, you know, kind of after boarding school came time to go to college. And, and for me, that naturally was culinary school as opposed to a traditional university. And after that came work, and I've been here ever since. Right. So you went to the CIA. I did. Um, we were just uh, we were just talking today, not to uh, date the podcast, but we were just announced a scholarship in Bourdain's name at the CIA, um, which is going to be one of the things that they're doing to celebrate his birthday coming up. Nice. Um, but it just reminded me of like how many people have gone through that place. Yeah, um, actually, I remember when I was at CIA in early two thousand one, Bourdain came to CIA to interview people about Kitchen Confidential at that time, and so I remember him like talking to you know soon to be chefs and their whites uh, walking down the hallways. That's a trip. That's yeah. like research for the book. Yeah. Oh man. I, I, just, I actually think the book had already come out, it, but he had just come out, and he was mm-hmm. maybe interviewing people like, "What do you think about the book?" Sort of thing. Oh, that's a trip. Man. Yeah. yeah, that was, uh, I think it would have come out in 2000 uh, was when the book came out. But, you know, he had this like very deep connection to that place, which was, I, you know, it's somewhat a little bit at odds, I guess, with his public persona, because it is, a, you know, I don't know how your experience of it, certainly the stories I always got from him, it sounded very formal and just, uh, you know, just a touch old school, you know, in a, in a way that uh, didn't really sit well with his uh, kind of punk rock heart. Um, but what was your experience going there? Um, I had a really positive experience, you know. Um, I had already been working in kitchens, but I'd never worked in an American kitchen. So that was sort of my first introduction to what my career might potentially look like in the U.S. And, you know, being like from the Caribbean and the tropics, it's 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 a different rhythm, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. But overwhelmingly, it was good. Um, I, I learned a ton in a really, really short period of time and, and enjoyed it. What did it set you up for? You went to New York right after to try to cook there? Uh, no, I actually came back to San Francisco. So back when I went to CIA, um, you did an internship kind of halfway through. And yeah. You spent six months at a, at a restaurant. And I had just taken a tour of Hudson Valley Foie as a part of like a school trip or whatnot. And they were talking about this crazy restaurant in San Francisco that was using more foie than anybody else. And it was a place <laughs> called La Folie. Um, and it's really a tiny restaurant. It's been around now for, for a really long time in San Francisco with a really, really good reputation. Very, very old school French. Um, and I was like, I have to go there. And when I got there, I quickly found out why they were going through more foie than anybody else. Because at the time, uh, an, a portion of foie gras was three slices of a lobe. Damn. It was three orders to a foie. I, I, I mean. They were just giving it away giving by it the away. truckload. Yeah. That's... Doing, doing what I do now, I don't understand how he made a penny, but. <laughs> he, had, he had a connect, man. <laughs> that foie had fallen off the truck somewhere. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. I, I fucking love that response. And somebody's <laughs> like, you know, there's a place that serves more foie <laughs> per capita than any restaurant on earth. And you're like, damn it, I'm there. Yeah. Let's get that. Man, okay, so what did you learn? Like, what did you learn coming to uh, this, like, foie festival? Who? Uh, I learned what uh, starting work at 
10 a.m. and leaving work at 1 a.m. felt like. Um, I did that for six months. I learned what being uh, one of the only women in a kitchen felt like. I learned uh, not to ask for help when, yeah. when my five foot three on a good day frame couldn't reach something up high. I learned to fend for myself, um, but I also learned a lot about cooking and discipline. Um, you know, looking back at it now, um, that that's not the way I would run a kitchen. I don't yeah. think it's the best way to train people. Uh, was but, it old school, just like oh, kind yeah. of belittlement and, you know, just kind of pressing boot on the neck kind of it style? Was, it was pressing. It yeah. was um, it was no shortcuts, no whining, uh, get it done sort, sort of style. Um, Top down for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you didn't like carry that dysfunction forward and take that and flick that on your next project? Or? Uh, no, sadly I did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it took me some time to... Uh, kind of mature and settle into my own, you know, to just to just gain my confidence and realize that I didn't I didn't actually need to tell somebody I was better than them to to be good, and that I'm actually not better than anybody. <laughs> We're just in the trenches, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where was that? Where did you uh, Where did you get that maturation going? Was it another restaurant, or did you start to branch out then? Um, I think I think I did it mostly by starting to, to branch out. I, I kind of cooked my way through a number of different places in San Francisco. I, after La Folie, I worked for a time uh, with Daniel Hum. He used to be the chef at Campton Place. Um, then I uh, worked... I mean, he's not like a straight-up hippie in the kitchen. Uh, no, he is not a straight-up hippie in the kitchen. <laughs> from, from what I've heard. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He runs a tight ship as well. Yeah. Uh, a different tight ship, but, right. but a tight ship. And I imagine a tighter ship now than when I than when I worked for him uh, back back then. But uh, yeah, and then I worked at a place called Salt House in San Francisco for some time. I uh, was one of the opening cooks at a restaurant called Contigo. I took a little hiatus from the kitchen and uh, went to work in, in the wine industry. I ran the food program at a wine bar. Not from a culinary perspective, but from a fun perspective. Probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. Yeah. Uh, made a lot of great friends. For the first time, made some tips, which was new for, <laughs> for an old cook. People weren't coming and throwing you money in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I drank a lot of good wine. Learned a lot about wine, uh, which I, I carry that knowledge with me now. And then uh, I decided to step away from the kitchen that I, I, that I basically wanted to do my own thing. And in San Francisco, it felt like opening a restaurant was, was absolutely out of the, out of the question with the, with the prices and, and whatnot. And so I decided to start a pickling business. Um, and I actually went to La Cocina. I, I sat through one of their orientations and, and, uh, and then eventually applied for the program and got in and, and operated a pickling business. Uh, it was called Jard SF Brine. Um, at La Cocina for about three and a half years uh, before I decided that nobody actually wants to pay money for, for pickles, <laughs> for pickles. And, and, and close that. What the fuck is wrong with you people? Pay money for pickles. Right? Stuff I mean, is like, it's, it's vegetables plus time. Like Exactly. And, <laughs> and, I, and I'm making a salad for you. You buy this red onion and then you have 17 salads. There you go. Slice um, some tomato, red uh, onion, you go. People are the worst. Uh, pay for your pickles, people. All right, so that's a big moment for you. You're a classically trained chef. I've gone through all these different jobs in San Francisco. And then all of a sudden, you're at the orientation of this program called La Cocina. Mm -hmm. Like, what was that like for you? Did you, I mean, what did you know about them? And, like, did you feel like this was some totally new adventure to kind of be on this as, like, an entrepreneur in, in training? I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't know much about La Cocina other than I drove by it every day on my way home. Um, I used to live up until just a few months ago, really, um, right up the right up the street from La Cocina. And I sat at that orientation and I listened to, at the time, Caleb, who was at the executive director, and Leticia, who I think was the program manager at the time, give this orientation. And, and I was inspired. I It really kind of armed me with the, the belief that like I had the power um, to do something for myself, that I no longer needed to work for the man, you know, both literally and figuratively, yeah. and that I could go out, branch out on my own and, and make this happen. And so I went home totally inspired, wrote a business plan and, and applied. So that's the uh, the great Caleb Zegas and Leticia Landa, who mm-hmm. uh, were co-founders of La Cocina. And it's like, how would you describe La Cocina? And it's and now, especially that you are a big part of the executive staff and, and working there, like what's what's the elevator version of what it is and what it does? Sure. So uh, La Cocina is a nonprofit kitchen incubator. Uh, we work with women primarily from immigrant communities and communities of color, and we support them in the process of formalizing food businesses. So people come to La Cocina with either an idea or an informal business. Uh, and we provide them with uh, a series of resources, among them mentoring classes and access to affordable commercial kitchen space. Uh, and we guide them as they uh, formalize and grow their businesses. And it has been around now for quite some time, right? Yeah, uh, 14 years. And how many how many different programs or like how many different businesses have, have come out you guys keep track to you. Yeah, yeah, we keep track. We gotta, we gotta, gotta like make a scorecard on the we wall. We gotta make that money, so we gotta, we gotta <laughs> yeah, get yeah. those stats. Right. Um, uh, we've uh, now worked with over a hundred businesses at La Cocina. We currently have thirty-two brick-and-mortar locations in and around the San Francisco Bay Area, so restaurant production facilities, uh, things of that nature. We have currently, aside from those thirty-two businesses, we have thirty-seven active program participants as well. Damn. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's such a, uh, it feels very anomalous, right? Like there's really, it's successful, it's it's stable, it's been going on for a long time. It should happen everywhere, but it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and La Cocina feels like a very specific and special San Francisco thing. And I don't know, you know, I wonder what it is about, you know, this town, about the Mission District, where it came up, where I guess the need was just so great. And then also, you know colliding with those good intentions that still survive in this city, (laughs) you know, Um, where people are kind of see that things are hard and want to make it better for some portion. I mean, you guys are nonprofits, so it's foundation gifts and donations that kind of run run the show? Yeah, we're, we're also about 60% self-funded, which is pretty rare for, for a nonprofit. Um, we do that through a host of different things. So we um, run a catering program. People just started calling us a lot, being like, hey, you're La Cocina. Can we get some food? <laughs> it's called the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get get and so, some food. All right. Yeah. And so somebody before my time wisely decided, maybe we should broker these opportunities and then charge not our clients, not the participants of La Cocina, but the person inquiring about catering, 10% above what right. our clients are charging, um, and keep that 10% to fund what we do. That has grown over time into a really lucrative arm of our business, and it really uh, supports us in, in funding some of the work that we do. We have a kiosk at the Ferry Building uh, where we sell uh, the packaged products that our entrepreneurs make. And so uh, that's kind of a double-edged sword there. We usually become their first wholesale account. 
and then also uh, we have a platform from which to uh, market our, our, our clients. We have a gift box program that's really great. So for all the all of you out there, Mother's Day, well, that just well, it's coming up. Yeah. It's coming up. Not when this podcast is coming out, though. Okay. Lord knows what holiday will be up. It'll be in a couple months. Well. But- Regardless of the holiday, we have the gift for you, a La Cocina gift box. Um, but, you know, we sell those. We make we make some money there. We have a host of different uh, events that we put up. So we have our uh, street food festival, which is in October every year in San Francisco, which is, is really big. We do a speaker series called F&B, so Food and Beverage, Voices from the Kitchen. We create a platform for the voices less often heard. And we kind of try to tackle, uh, if you will, unanswerable subjects in the world of food. So like... We did an installment all on like labor and the challenges of, of staffing in in the food world, and uh, you know, and, uh, we did one on refuge, one on race, things. So. One was called brains, uh, one on matriarchy, and so we kind of touch on these topics that are, if you will, either either taboo or, or just hard to tackle, and and come out with no answers, but a, a bunch of great stories that might not be specifically about food, but really circle around food. We wrote a cookbook. We're gonna make some money when we sell that. Yeah, that's coming out. Yeah. That, that we're gonna we're gonna figure out ways to plug that. That's coming out June fourth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's coming out like in a week yeah. or less, yeah. which is super exciting. And these are it's a collection of recipes from some of the grantees. Yeah. So and stories along with yeah. them, right? So it's it's really it's more than a cookbook, you know. And really, uh, Caleb Valenticia did the bulk of, of the writing for the book. Um, I wrote two of the stories, and a couple other of the uh, employees at La Cocina wrote other stories as well. But um, we're really kind of parting from the from the standpoint that like the success of La Cocina's entrepreneurs, you know, it's not it's not exclusively about food. I mean, of course, that's important, and it's got to be delicious. Otherwise, what the hell are we doing? Um, but really, it, this, their success lies on, on their stories. You know, people are more attracted to eating food and food, in my opinion anyways, taste better when you can talk to the human being preparing that food, when you can know something about them, when it, when it tastes of a sense of place. None of this authentic, like, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. What is authenticity anyways? Um, but really, like... I don't know, like Beanie is one of our entrepreneurs. Maybe we'll go grab lunch there after this. But, you know, I'm Beanie and this is my story. And this is why you should try my Momo. Right. You know, it's not it's not Nepal's Momo. I am from Nepal, but it's my Momo, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Um, and so in the book, you know, a lot of uh, there were a lot of intentional decisions made. You know, it's not a coffee book. It's not a coffee table cookbook. It's not massive. It's a thing you can carry around. It's like halfway between a book yeah. and a cookbook and there's uh, a number of different stories in there and so you have a photo of an entrepreneur a short story about who they are how they arrived at this point of making food for people and then three stories uh that they provided for the cookbook so oh cool yeah now you wrote uh you wrote one of those stories was it about beanie i wrote no i wrote two stories i wrote a story about uh, a woman named eileen um who is filipino-american and a story about a, a woman named Alma, who's originally from Mexico. Okay. Yeah. And basically the story of the food that they cook, like their their life, how they got to this point. Mostly a story about their life, you know. So they're, they're very, very different stories. Um, and they ended up being very different stories than the ones I set out to write. Um, so the, the, the Eileen story kind of went this roundabout way. And, and suddenly, and, I, you know, I've known Eileen now for, for a few years and, and, and care for her deeply and and knew her, but in the process of writing the story, found out we have a ton in common. Um, you know, we're born two uh, two years and two days apart. 
Um, we both somehow ended up in San Francisco and probably, and also ended up at La Cocina. Um, and we both have kind of grown up, uh, kind of towing the line between two cultures. Um, Eileen, uh, comes from a Filipino family, but she's very much American and, and, and I mean, she's very much both, but she was raised in the U S and, and so really plays this role between two cultures and, and the same for me, right? I was randomly born in the u.s so to speak uh but really identify fully as venezuelan but when i go back to venezuela or when i see my aunts and uncles they call me the gringa which (laughs) i like and don't like um and uh and so you know there's like a lot of parallels there so that that story is a little bit about that and and also about um her awakening to food her realization that food is a is a vehicle um, that has the power to, to do a ton of things, to unite people, to break barriers, to bring people together. Um, and that uh, food was a vehicle that could connect her with both of her lives, the, her Filipino life and, and her American life. And then she has a couple of recipes. Uh, in, in, in the, when I was interviewing her for the story, she was telling me about this soup her mother used to make for her called binnacle, uh, which is a soup made with like young coconut water and... Uh, chicken and lemongrass and uh, garlic, cilantro, and it's like tangy and fishy and sweet and all these delicious things. Um, so that kind of ties this kind of story together at points. And then Alma's story is quite different. It's it's her story about kind of becoming the, the woman she is today, uh, uh, the story of when, when she met her husband, who was her chambelan. Um, I'm, I'm not Mexican, so I, at La Cocina, I've learned a lot about Mexican culture. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's kind of my, my adoptive culture now, if you will. Um, but uh, a chambelan is is one of the uh, the the young men that walks you ex- escorts you out uh, uh, at your quinceanera at your at your fifteenth birthday party, and uh, her husband um, Alvaro was her her chambelan, um, and so uh, she tells a story about him walking around and soon thereafter them like really falling in love and deciding to to start a life together and then becoming pregnant and her husband leaving for the U S to help support the family and time apart and time together. And all this back and forth, yeah. and uh, that is like a deeply Mexican story right there. Yeah. <laughs> when you marry your chambelan, and then he has to go up north to work. This is like the novella of the yeah. everyday there. Yeah, um, that's really cool. Yeah. And so, what is what's the food project that Alma's doing? Um, her business is called Michote, and a Michote is a pre-Hispanic uh, Mexican dish, if you will. Um, uh, it can be any meat or fish or veggie, uh, usually marinated in a sauce made of dried chilies and other spices, orange, thing, uh, clove, things like that. And uh, after you marinate that meat for some time, you take it and you wrap it in avocado and plantain leaves. Traditionally, you would dig a pit into the ground and put this stuff in there and then like throw fire on top of it and just let it sit until it cooked. Uh, she cooks it in a steamer nowadays. Um, but that's her concept. She makes michotes, you know, so um, lamb, beef, pork, veggie. Uh, fish, you name it. She oh, that's makes badass. It. And yeah. where is she doing that? Is she out of a truck or is she out of a storefront? Um, she doesn't have a storefront yet that yeah. we're looking for one. Um, she does a lot of catering at the moment. Um, she's always at our street food festival. Um, she also uh, does pop-ups at different restaurants and things like that. And Alma um, is also fiercely passionate about food um, and really craves learning. So she is, uh, also at the moment working with different chefs in the Bay area to, to learn more about food and to learn how to kind of operate, uh, bigger scale restaurants. I mean, she's, she's got ambitions of, of doing something, um, really, really beautiful, unique, and, and maybe 
not quite, not not fine dining, but elevated and thoughtful. So she's she's been at State Bird Provisions doing some some staging there. Oh, nice. Um, she's working with one of our graduates now who opened a restaurant called Besharam. Besharam means uh, shameless in Hindi. Um, and so she's and probably cooking Gujarati food, veg- almost 100% vegetarian Gujarati food. And- sure. I mean, well, I mean, we know this about a lot of kitchens, especially in New York. It's like any kind of food on earth, the Mexicans are in the back cooking it and doing yeah. like pretty damn good versions, yeah, you know? exactly. So as part of your job, you are, you evaluate the people who come in and, you know, the people who were you back in the day when you were doing jarred. What is the evaluation process? Like, how much is it like, we know this is going to taste so good that these people are going to be successful. Or do you look at the individual and just like, okay, they're super ambitious and, you know, we really know what to do with the opportunity they're going to get here. Like, how do you... Do you have like percentages of like deliciousness versus drive? You know, like what kind of your evaluation metrics are? It's it's complicated and not set in stone. Um, so uh, we look for a few things. Uh, one is entrepreneurial drive, right? Does this person present like somebody who's going to work their ass off? Because it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're working in food, you're working your ass off all day, every day, you know? Um, so is this person show that they have the willingness and the drive and the capacity to work as hard as it's going to take uh, to get their business off the ground? Um, then we ask ourselves, uh, do we believe this to be a product that may be viable within the marketplace? Then we also ask ourselves, do we have the expertise and capacity uh, to support this uh, product or concept in, in working? And, uh, and then we kind of take it from there and kind of set off. You know, I think um, for us, and one thing that I, that I advocate for a lot when we have like an application around a La Cocina and entrepreneurs are coming in is that um, if somebody has done the work, even if we're unsure whether or not it's going to take, they deserve the chance. They deserve to, the chance to fail, right? Like, Arguably, one would say that I tried and failed, uh, but that failure brought me here. I've learned more at opening and closing a business than anything else in my life, potentially with the exception of working with businesses every day at La Cocina, right? Wow, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're designed to, to be there as a guide. We really strive at every turn that we have to mitigate risk. Um, and so if, if somebody needs to spend $5,000 uh, and gets a chance to be their own boss for three years and then fail, then that to me seems like a worthwhile investment. The learning in that is huge. And the upside of that is that you won't fail. And overwhelmingly at La Cocina, we see that people don't fail. That at least San Francisco is hungry for the sort of foods that the entrepreneurs walking through the doors at La Cocina are preparing. And I think food world is changing more and more in that direction. Well, I mean, I was going to ask about that because obviously the statistics, the mortality rates on restaurants in general are just atrocious. And San Francisco is a particularly overheated rental market and life is hard here uh, for so many people. Like, is there any part of you that's like, wait a second, are we, I mean, I, I kind of feel like this when people come and ask me about going into journalism and like advice and I'm like, I am not going to make this sound too good because really, you know, chances are you should do something else because this fucking sucks right now. You know, like this is really hard uh, and it's a bad time for the industry and the rest of that. But do you how do you feel about like bringing people in who hadn't been working in food, hadn't been food entrepreneurs and saying like, okay, like, let's do this, like point your point your life in this direction? Yeah, I mean. I think twofold on a personal level. Sometimes I'm like, what, people are fucking trusting me to give advice? Who am I, you know? Um, that, that is definitely what <laughs> runs through my head about myself in those moments. So it's a, it's a good sign of humanity, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> 
But once I get over that, um, then I think to myself, uh, this is a, a great industry and an industry that's ripe for change, an industry that needs to change. You know, it's called the hospitality industry, but it's highly inhospitable to so many people. Uh, the color of the skin gets darker the further you get in a kitchen, and it's time for that to change. It's time to see uh, more women, all kinds of women, and, and, and more people of color in leadership positions. And it's time to change the, the whole story about what food can become. You know, it's, it's funny, we talk so much about sustainability of ingredients, sustainability of this and that. How about the sustainability of the people who are killing themselves to prepare this food for you? You know, like it's, so I, I think, um, I feel like my job and La Cocina's job is to level the playing field to identify good opportunities and bad opportunities, to run away screaming from the bad ones and to chase down the good ones um, and to advocate at every step of the way. Because what we see overwhelmingly is that when we break down the barriers to entry uh, and give people a real chance to play, they succeed. That's interesting. And not to like, you know, draw parallels between my own inspiring story of a sort of Jewish guy who... <laughs> you know, started a media company, <laughs> just doesn't have a lot of that kind of social justice uh, ring to it. But I do remember feeling like when I left, I had been working at Time Magazine, I left to start a very small, our own project. And in part, I, would, I wanted to see what the power in the business was, because I, I, I thought it was doing weird things. And I they were very opaque, like, how does money get made in media? Like, what are the choices that come out of that? How does that influence what you have? And like, even as a small business owner, or maybe it's not to scale, but you still start to learn what like what the whole structure is, what the whole machinery is. And I can see for La Cocina, just giving people the ability to see beyond that so that they, whether they, you know, win or lose, they've, they've gotten the experience of like knowing, yes, this is this is how like money is made in this business. This mm -hmm. is how power, you know, where it comes from and where it lives. So they don't just have to keep applying for kitchen jobs yeah. uh, on some level. How do you, what's the hardest thing for, and that, you know, with so many people you've worked with, I bet it's hard to make generalizations, but like, what's the toughest thing generally? Like the one thing where you're like, more often than not, people are gonna struggle with this. I mean, it's finances. You yeah. Know? It's uh, it's getting the money together to launch the business. You know, the vast majority of our business is formalized with five thousand dollars or less, and then it's kind of this this cat and mouse game that we play of like, okay, how much can we grow with these five thousand dollars before we hit a roadblock, and then what are we going to figure out? You know, it's it's kind of like a kitchen hack. What are we going to hack to get over this hump? You know. Luckily, there's a, there's a lot of things out there. There's a lot of hacks, right? There's things, uh, and they're, they're great hacks. I don't mean to downplay the <laughs> yeah, importance yeah. and the effectiveness of them. Uh, but, you know, like uh, Kiva, for instance, is a micro lender. It's a crowdsourcing lending mm -hmm. platform. People can get uh, up to $10,000 loans. There's 0% interest. Um, there's no need for credit. You know, you... Uh, you apply for the loan, you put up a profile page, and Kiva will say to you, great, um, you need to find 25 people within your own community to lend you money between, you know, 5 and $25. If you can get 25 people to, that you know to lend you money, we are going to believe that you're credible enough to pay us back. And then we're going to make the loan, the, the remainder of the loan, live on our platform, and strangers will lend to you. Right. And then you'll pay that back over time, right? I mean, if you've read, you know, reached your first roadblock and you have access to ten thousand dollars well that's your hack you know right. you're over that one and then you go on to your next runway and by the time you you hit these roadblocks and 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 surpass them 
then suddenly what you've done in that year or year and a half is build yourself a pretty good business, a business that's been paying rent for a year and a half, a business that's been paying payroll, a business that generates revenue on a monthly basis, a business that understands what food cost is, so on and so forth. And then when you go, not to a traditional lending institution, because sadly they don't lend to restaurants and especially not restaurants that don't already have millions of dollars in the bank. But when you go to another micro lender that is willing to lend you 50 or $100,000, you present to them as a, as, a, as a reputable business in operation. And what that has done for us, kind of the unintended side effect of that is that by the time our entrepreneurs, you know, most of our entrepreneurs come with a hope of starting a restaurant. But they don't have the money to do that, right? You can't go from zero to 60. You know, you can't go from zero dollars to $700,000, which is what you need to open a fast casual restaurant in San Francisco. But by the time they've spent two years in the program, when they go to talk to a landlord, they already have a full-fledged catering business. It's flushed out. They already have two secured farmer's markets in which they sell two to $4,000 a market. And they are already paying between four and $6,000 in rent at La Cocina. So you can actually look at the landlord straight in the eye and say, here's the deal. Your rent is $5,000. I can pay that. I pay more than that at La Cocina. And I don't need to make a dime here. This, for me, any money that comes out of this location is just the gravy on top. Yeah. So. Damn, that's, so that's the path. That's, that's the where path. you want to go. That's, that's the dream. Oh, man. All Takes right. Takes a little long, but we get there. Tell me, for, uh, for people who are coming to San Francisco, what are three La Cocina places that... They got to see. I know I'm this is, choosing, this is, choosing this is your bad. children. Yeah. 28 people will be mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one was my first big project at La Cocina. So that's why I'm choosing it. El Buen Comer. It's on Mission in Kingston. Uh, Isabel is the owner. She is from Mexico City and she specialized in making in making stews, guisados of Mexico yeah. City. Yeah. Dude, I got to tell you, I, I landed here a couple nights ago, went to my dad's house. I had not talked to him about working with La Cocina or anything, he had made the albondigas from, uh, they had a recipe from El Buen Comer nice. in, uh, in the Chronicle. Nice. In like albondigas and some adobo sauce. It was hella good. It yeah, was like, it's great. And I was like reading, he was like, yeah, read this. It's really cool. And I was like, oh shit, this is La Cocina. It's like, you guys are everywhere. Yeah, like, she's <laughs> legit. I mean, um, Isabel has been making the breadsticks for the Pizzeria Delfinas uh, for like nine years now. And so she has a really good relationship with Anthony and the whole Delfina team. And a few years back, we did uh, a dinner in which we had them go kind of head to head with like the Mexican and the Italian oh, version. Nice. And so they, you know. It's a little they, mission mini drama. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, Delfina did their like uh, Italian style tripe and Isabel did Mondongo. And then they did their Italian meatballs and Isabel did albondigas. And it was a blast, you oh, know. It's so and cool. it was like. Um, All right, so we got El Buen Comer. Okay. Uh, Beanie's Kitchen just opened. We might be going there after this. That's uh, right. The Momos yeah. that, that don't stop. Yeah, uh, exactly. All right. Um, and then I'm going to throw out there uh, Niambai, Night Young. Uh, she is uh, Cambodian. She was born in a refugee camp in Thailand and opened a restaurant in Fruitvale, uh, which is uh, a phenomenal neighborhood in, in the East Bay. It's actually at the Transit Village, so right where the BART drops you off. Um, and she's like eating up awards left and right. And this is They're a Cambodian like, first spot. Yeah, uh, Cambodian no. noodle soup. Yeah. 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 Right. That is also funny because we were just talking about that. I was like, um, I was over at Dan the Automator, who does the music for the show, is like a ridiculous fan of that spot. Yeah. I had no idea that was a La Cocina. Joint. Yeah. She's great. And her That's food so is crazy. phenomenal. And she's like eating awards like candy. 
that's uh and she deserves every every single one yeah that's so crazy man it's just like it feels like it's in my friends and my family like everybody's like keyed in on all these la cocina projects um well it's super rad man i am i'm so excited to get to like talk about it i'm psyched to be pushing your book next week uh when it comes out um, we'll have all the links to that in the show notes, but mostly just congratulations. You know, there's a lot of bullshit in food uh, and a lot of like bad, bad vibes and, you know, just kind of um, tough lives. And it just feels like a project like this is it's just good stuff, you know? Yeah, it's great, you know, and, and I mean, super cheesy, but like everyone can have a hand in like shaping the communities we want to build. Um, we all eat three times a day. That's three times that you have an opportunity to vote with your dollar. You know, and whether that's the farmer that you buy your veggies from or the restaurant you choose to eat, like that's how change happens. You know, restaurants don't grow, you know, at random. They grow by people going there, spending their dollar and not complaining about the cost of food. Amen. Man, um, pay for your fucking pickles, people. Pay for your pickles. (laughs) Pay for your pickles. (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Taffy Mokanyazi was our consulting producer on this episode. Alexa Van Sickle is our online editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. If you enjoyed what Emiliana was talking about in this episode, if you think as I do, that this is exactly the time to go and support the women behind our food. Go buy the La Cocina book. Buy a La Cocina gift box. Tell a friend. It's worth it. Next on this feed, back in Havana with some original episodes from Cuba. This time with Monica Barreau, the independent journalist working at great personal risk under a regime that hated the free press long before Trumpism ever darkened our door. I hope that we will meet you there.